Welcome, everybody. You know, I'm somewhat of a history buff, but admittedly, I've not read the biographies of many people. Most biographies I read are on Wikipedia. However, one thing I know about biographies is that even if someone's death is dramatic, it will still occupy only a small part of the overall biography. That's true with everyone except Jesus. There are four biographies of Jesus' life penned by four men we know as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. The interesting thing is that each of these men give a disproportionate amount of their letters to the topic of Jesus' death. In fact, one-fourth to one-third of each man's gospel deals with the last week of Jesus' life. So we're going to take a journey today, and we're going to visit Jerusalem in 33 AD. And we're going to look at this day we call Good Friday, and every detail of the story is just another piece of the puzzle for God's master plan. Here's what we read in Galatians 4.4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Did you catch that? In other words, at this one point in history, when all the pieces were in place, God sent Jesus into the world on a mission to die and to defeat the power of sin, Satan, and death. And today we explore all the key players in God's plan. Now, I don't remember who it was, but somebody laid this out for me years ago, and it was very, very helpful. And I hope to do the same for you today. Now, what we are going to do today is to work from the end of the day backwards. So imagine with me, it's Friday, late afternoon, and on a hill called Golgotha, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, three crosses stand. Lifeless bodies hang from each cross. On the two outside crosses hang the bodies of two thieves, names unknown. However, on the middle cross hangs the body of one known as Jesus. Known to some as a prophet, to others as a rabbi, to some as a heretic, and yet to others as the long-awaited Messiah. And only on his cross is there a sign above his head which reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the question we ask is, why did Jesus die? He was meek, a friend of sinners, a hope bringer, a miracle worker. How did such a man end up an executed enemy of the state? Well, you're going to see that Friday was a day of mixed motives, very odd alliances, secret meetings, political maneuvering. It was explosive and deadly, specifically for Jesus. And everybody on this one day had an agenda. So as we walk through the events of this day and look at all the cast of characters, we will ask, what did they all want? And which agenda prevailed? Why did Jesus die? So let's start. From 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., we have the crucifixion. Now, the main player behind the scenes was Rome. And Rome would unapologetically say that the reason why Jesus died is because he was a threat to Rome. Why did they consider Jesus a threat? Well, because many were calling Jesus a savior, a Messiah, a Christ, which means the anointed one. And Jesus allowed people to call him these things and never corrected them. Now, this idea of a Messiah is very important in understanding Jesus. There were a lot of people in Jesus' day claiming to be a Messiah, and they were going to lead a political movement. 
So imagine for a moment that the Middle East is a volatile place where religious fervor and politics gets mixed up in dangerous ways. Hard to imagine the Middle East being like that, huh? But that's how it was. And part of that was because another force was at play. We're going to call them the crowds in Jerusalem. And these crowds were waiting for a political leader. They were waiting for a Messiah to lead them to overthrow Rome and who would clean up all the corruption in the temple and restore Israel's divine place in the world. And everybody in the Jewish community agreed that the Messiah would be a very powerful figure who would lead Israel and overthrow Rome. So there's a lot of wannabe messiahs in Jesus' day. Let me point to scripture to show you what I mean. We read in Acts 5.36, Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. Then just the next verse in Acts 5.37, After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Again, you don't mess with Rome. History tells us that Rome perfected the art of death by crucifixion, that it was not uncommon at all to have hundreds, if not thousands of crucifixions in one single day. And many times they would leave the crosses standing just to communicate the message to all the passersby, that just in case you get any bright ideas about taking on Rome or convincing people not to pay their taxes, just remember, Rome always has plenty of crosses. This happened time and time again. History records at least 18 wannabe messiahs in Jesus' day, and they all get killed by Rome. Now, Jesus gets crucified, and yet we know that he was not this kind of military leader, messiah, or king. In fact, he deliberately denies that role. One time when he had just fed the multitudes, John writes in John 6.15, Jesus, knowing that they, meaning his followers, intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus won't take up arms against Rome. He retreats, and this frustrates people enormously. So if he won't lift a finger against Rome, why does he end up on a cross? Well, we have to go back to an earlier scene on Friday when the chief priests bring Jesus to a man known in history as Pontius Pilate. So at 8 a.m., Jesus meets Pilate. Let me tell you a little bit about Pilate. Pilate rules over Judea on behalf of Caesar. He's trying to please Caesar so he can move up the ranks and get out of Judea. Nobody in Pilate's line of work wanted to be in the Middle East because it was so volatile. And it was nothing but a big headache to the guy in charge. And if he couldn't make heads roll, Caesar would make sure his head rolled. So he's always putting out fires and revolts. So like any other politician, Pilate has to do some juggling. He's got to work with the chief priests. These guys are the ones in charge of the temple. If you want one word that summarizes their strategy for dealing with Rome, the strategy of the chief priests is that they were collaborators. That word is collaborate. 
They had to stay close enough to Rome so that Rome will allow them to rule over the temple, but they can't get too close to the Romans or the crowds won't like it. So the chief priests even have to do some juggling as well. They are viewed as collaborators and they aren't always viewed really well by the crowds. Now there's another group of people you may have heard of in the Bible and they're called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the teachers of the law. And the word that summarizes their strategy for dealing with Rome is the word purify. They believe that Israel's main problem is that they've neglected the law of God. And if they could just get a group of people who would purify themselves before God, that God would be honored and God would reward that kind of sincerity and devotion and behavior by destroying Rome and thereby liberate Israel. Now, there's another group of people as well. They're called the Zealots. Their strategy wasn't theological or political. It was brutal. Their way of dealing with Rome was summed up in one word, and that's fight. Let's take up arms against Rome through guerrilla warfare and such. God will bless our courage and take down Rome. Then there's another group called the Essenes. Their strategy when it came to dealing with Rome was simply to withdraw. They believed that not only was Rome bad, but the whole entire religious system had become so corrupt that they would withdraw to the desert to make a kind of utopia out in the wilderness. Now, all these people on the screen have two deep convictions. Number one, Rome is evil. Number two, Rome should be destroyed. They often don't get along with each other, and Pilate's job is to try to put a lid on all this mess. And he was a ruthless man, as ruthless as anybody. He ruled with an iron fist. In fact, we read about some of his actions in Luke 13.1. Here's what we read. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. See, the temple is the holiest place in Israel. It's ground zero for Israel's identity. But it was also the place where plans were hatched and anti-Rome rhetoric regularly occurred. And some people had gathered for worship one day and Pilate decides they're a threat. And so he has them executed in the holiest place in all of Israel. And people ask, Jesus, what do you think about this? And that's Pilate. A historian named Philo writes this about Pilate. He says, Pilate's rule was marked by bribery, insults, robberies, supreme cruelty, executions without a trial, and a furious vindictive temper. Can you imagine a politician with a temper problem? This is the man in whose hands Jesus' life now rests. Now you see how all these powers and agendas are at work, right? So the chief priests, they bring Jesus to Pilate, and this is their charge. This is what they say against him, Luke 23, 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. Now, truth be told, the chief priests could give a rip about paying taxes to Caesar. They don't want to pay taxes to Caesar themselves. What they're simply doing is they're trying to put pressure on Pilate to make him do what they want him to do, and that is to kill Jesus. So they're saying, in essence, this Jesus is a problem for Rome, and Caesar wouldn't like it, Pilate. 
But Pilate resists the chief priests because Pilate always resists the chief priests. Because if he does what they say, then they will get stronger, which by definition means that he will get weaker. So he's looking for any reason to deny their request, and he comes up with one. He refers the matter to Herod, claiming that Herod has jurisdiction over the affairs of Galilee. But Herod says, I'm not touching Jesus with a 10-foot pole. It's too controversial. So it ends up back in Pilate's lap. So at this point, Pilate turns to the crowds. You know the story. Pilate says, at feast time, at Passover, we always release a prisoner to you. So we'll give you a choice in the matter. We'll release Jesus, who's harmless, or this murderer named Barabbas. And the crowds want who? Barabbas. Now you understand why. Barabbas is a murderer. He's willing to kill Romans and go against Rome. That's why Barabbas is on trial. So the crowds say, at least Barabbas will kill Rome, and Jesus won't go after Rome, so just give us Barabbas. Finally, in a famous scene, Pilate washes his hands. And this is not because Pilate has a sensitive conscience or that he's worried about Jesus in any way. Pilate could care less about the fate of what he thinks is just another dime store would-be Messiah. Pilate's main agenda is to maintain the upper hand over the chief priest and the temple activities and suppress revolt. But the chief priests, they have a little trump card up their sleeves. And this is what they say, John 19, 12. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. These priests are weasels. See, the chief priest knows that Pilate cannot afford to be seen by Caesar as soft or weak when it comes to anyone who is a threat to Rome. So Pilate turns to Jesus and asks in John 18.33 this question, Are you the king of the Jews? This is a very dramatic, climactic moment in this story. Because Jesus can go free if he just gives Pilate the right answer. It is so ironic because earlier in his ministry, people wondered about this, whether or not Jesus really was the Messiah. And all Jesus had to say was, yep, I'm the Messiah. And all of Israel would have risen up in arms and would have died for Jesus. But he wouldn't say, yep, that's me. This is what is going on during Palm Sunday. People are celebrating Passover. Now, now think with me for a minute. What do they celebrate at Passover? They're celebrating a time where in their nation's past, a leader named Moses arose and delivered his people out of a land where they were oppressed and enslaved. And he led them out of Egypt and God destroyed Pharaoh and his army. That's what is being celebrated in Jerusalem. And now it's not Egypt, but Rome. Now the bad guy isn't Pharaoh, but Caesar. And now the deliverer isn't Moses, but Jesus. And this young leader, Jesus, comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's why everybody is saying, Hosanna to the son of David, David the warrior king. But unlike David the warrior king, Jesus won't fight. He keeps not claiming this title. You go through the Gospels and he says he's the Messiah in very cryptic ways. Like he'll say it when he's in Samaria, but not when he's in Israel. 
And this is precisely why the crowds turn on him from Palm Sunday to Friday. On Palm Sunday, they thought, here's the revolution. And then Jesus wouldn't revolt, wouldn't lift a sword or destroy the Romans. But now, when nobody is around, when he is in the hands of the chief priests and Pilate, now when there are no crowds to hear him, no army to rise up and defend him, now Jesus gives a definitive answer to Pilate, and he says in Luke 23, 3, yes, it is as you say. In other words, I am a king. I am the long-awaited one the world has been waiting for. Jesus knows what will happen with the utterance of those words. He has just sealed his own fate. So Pilate pronounced the sentence. But Pilate isn't the one who wanted this to happen. So who is really making this happen? Well, let's back up. Why do the chief priests want Jesus dead? Because shortly before Good Friday, Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. So the Pharisees and the chief priests had a meeting, and here is what is said at that meeting, John eleven forty seven. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, this is not an idle fear that they have. In fact, this is exactly what happened in the year 70 AD. There was one revolt, one wannabe Messiah, too many. And the Romans came in and destroyed and laid waste to the temple and the nation of Israel. So this is a very legitimate fear the chief priests have. Well, let's read on. John 11, verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. Here's what he said. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Think about that. Caiaphas was saying so much more than what he ever knew. One man was going to die, but not just for Israel, but for all the scattered people of God across the world. So the priests knew that if unrest got too strong in Jerusalem, the Romans had an itchy trigger finger and would swoop in and destroy them. They also know, though, that Jesus was not a military threat. But they understood that his teaching and his movement was the threat of another kind. This Jesus, the likes of whom had never been seen before, was claiming and manifesting that the kingdom of God was now present on earth, that the love of God, power of God, grace of God, salvation of God was present. And it wasn't present in the temple. It wasn't present in the sacrifice. It wasn't present in the law. It was bodied in one person. It was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ exclusively. This one man, through what he said and how he lived and how he loved, evidenced the kingdom of God was here. He was telling everybody, Jew and non-Jew, that God's love, God's blessing, God's presence was now available to the world exclusively through him. Not only had no one done this before, no one had ever thought this before. And they could not let a man making such statements live. Jesus' teachings were undermining their whole religious system. So before the hearing with Pilate, there was another meeting with the Sanhedrin at 3 a.m. 
The Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court in Israel when it came to religious matters. It was comprised of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And this group had Jesus arrested very early Friday morning to have their own little trial before they take him to Pilate. And we're told this happened before daylight so that it could be secret, hush-hush, and possibly illegal. And the reason this was so secretive was because there was a very delicate matter they needed to work out. Here's what they needed to do. They needed to get the crowds on the one hand to hate Jesus, and they had to get Rome and Pilate on the other hand to crucify Jesus. Now, the quickest way to get Pilate to crucify Jesus was to tell him that Jesus was a threat to Caesar. But if they tell the crowds that Jesus is a threat to Caesar and Rome, they'll love Jesus even all the more. So they got to come up with two charges. So here's what they do. They charge Jesus with blasphemy, so the crowds will hate Jesus for blaspheming the God of Israel. And they charge Jesus with treason, so Pilate will kill him because he's not a friend of Caesar. But this is kind of tricky. In fact, it's so tricky, they couldn't pull it off. In Mark 14, 56, here's what we read. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Do you see the picture here? We've got this kangaroo court going on. And again, all Jesus has to do is be silent. And once again, Jesus does not remain silent. He makes no attempt to correct the false witnesses, no attempt to explain his mission more correctly. He sits in silence while they mock him. Mark 14, 61, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus says in verse 62, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is it, friends. There is his death sentence. With that, Jesus hands them everything they need for the verdict that they could not get from all the false witnesses. In other words, Jesus does their work for them. Why? Well, we have to go back to an even earlier point, a place called Gethsemane. It was a garden, and it's 12 a.m. Friday morning. When Jesus is in the garden... He has a lot of options. He can fight like the zealots. He's young. He's got charisma. And the crowds would easily follow him to their death. He could withdraw like the Essenes and go start a safe little community in the desert. And lots of people would probably follow him there as well. He could also collaborate with the chief priests and assure them that he's not a threat at all to their religious system. He could also try to cut a deal with Pilate and say, hey, listen, I can be the go-between between you and the chief priest, and I can make sure there's no insurrections, there's no revolts. I can put out the fires before they even start. And there's also one last option. Jesus could call on his father and ask for legions of angels. If there was one more miracle, maybe that would rally everybody to his side. But he does none of those things. Instead, this one lone, vulnerable, deserted man says, I know what I must do. I will not fight. I will not run. I will not deal. I will not dazzle. I will die. 
I will die. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. This man is amazing. Who would have ever thought the real messianic fate, the real messianic mission was to die out of love for others? And he does in a real and very concrete way. So he dies for all these people who hate him. He says, I will willingly lay down my life for all these people who do not understand so that the world can be saved. Through love that is unexplainable, Jesus sized up this situation and identified exactly what was needed to bring redemption. It cost him everything. It cost him his life. And he turned out to be exactly right. And 2,000 years later, here we are. And Pilate, of all people, who never intended to be the mouthpiece of God, wrote it all out for the world to see. He wrote it in Hebrew, the language of the people of God. He wrote it in Greek, the language of the cultured world. He wrote it in Latin, the language of the Roman Empire, so that the whole world could see the gospel. Here is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Isn't that amazing? Jesus outthought, outmaneuvered, outcrafted every power at play. Not just that, but he outloved everybody. Because in the garden, Jesus just had one agenda. Everybody had an agenda for Jesus on this day, but Jesus just had one agenda, and that was to love. I'll die on Friday. And he dies for the world. Not because of anybody else. It wasn't because of Pilate or Herod or Caesar, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, or the crowds. He said in John 10, starting in verse 15, I, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Friends, one Friday, long, long ago, God declared his love for you and me and every sinner who's ever lived. On that one Friday, Jesus said, I will suffer. I will die. I choose love. The reason he chose love is because he knew that what was inevitable for him was inevitable for us as well, namely death. We've been recently told by government officials to expect 100 to 200,000 of our countrymen to perish in the next couple weeks because of the coronavirus. But regardless if it's that or cancer, a heart attack, old age, disease, an accident of some sort, listen, death does not have to be the final say in your life. You can have hope for all eternity because of this one named Jesus. My question for you is very simple. Do you know him? Have you asked this Jesus for his death to cover and forgive your sins? If this is a decision that you would like to make, or if you would like to continue the conversation with us, would you please text us at 260-215-4334? That's 260-215-4334. And someone from our ministry will respond. We sure hope to hear from you. Until next Sunday, please know that you are loved and that God is in control. Please pray with me. Father, thank you that you reign sovereign over the affairs of this world. 
that in your sovereignty you sent Christ when the time was right, when the fullness of time had come, when all the pieces were in place for your divine plan of redemption and love and salvation to be hatched. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus, through his willingness to lay down his life, became the gateway for men and women all across time, all across world, all across all tribes and nations and cultures and nationalities, that they can have the hope of eternal life. So Lord, I pray for that man or that woman listening today, that if they haven't turned to Jesus, if they haven't given their sin to Jesus, if they haven't put their hope in Jesus, that today will be the day that they turn to him and find eternal life. Thank you, Father, for your love for us, for your protection of us, and for the place you are providing for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.